Amen. So Matthew chapter 25 is where we're at this morning. Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 31, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. Jesus uh, continues speaking, and he says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will uh, be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on his left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and uh, you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will say to them, then he will answer them, saying, as surely I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into everlasting life. So this morning we continue our study through the Gospel of Matthew. And today we're going to be finishing up this teaching our Lord gave to his disciples called the Olivet Discourse. And we looked uh, at the parable of the talents last week. And we, were, we saw the encouragement from the Lord last week that we need to use our talents, our gifts, our uh, resources today. We need to be engaged. We need to be in the mix. We, we got to put our lives into circulation. And we need to avoid isolating ourselves becoming disengaged. As we see the world all around us, you know, break down and destabilize right before our, our eyes, we need to use all that the Lord has entrusted to us for Him and His kingdom today. And we need to use all that God has given us for His work. Now, I think it's a, a useful insight to recognize that the, the servant who failed to use uh, what the Master had given him was a servant who said to himself, you know, I don't really have much to offer. You know, compared to those other guys, I really don't have much at all. You know, I can't sing or play an instrument. You know, I, I can't preach or teach a Bible study. Uh, you know, there's no way I could even be a missionary. I hardly even know the Bible well enough to witness to somebody else. You know, what kind of difference can I make? And the Lord in that parable would warn us through that parable of the talents, that kind of attitude is a danger to us. God has given each of us unique gifts and abilities, talents and opportunities and influence. In whatever measure, whatever, you know, resources he's given you, well, you need to be careful to use those things for the Lord and his glory. We must not and we cannot bury what God has given us. There is a place for each of you to be used in this body, right? And make no mistake about it. Calvary Chapel Truckee needs each of us to be engaged, right? There's a place for each of us to be used in the Lord's work, building his kingdom through utilizing the gifts that he's given you. He's prepared 
good works for you that you might walk in them, is what it says in, in Ephesians 2, right? The parable of talents finishes with Jesus giving maybe one of the strongest warnings to his disciples that he gives in, in, in the entire New Testament. Verse 30, if you look at it, it says, and cast the unprofitable servant out uh, into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I mean, it's such a strong warning that the Lord gave to his disciples. And he gives that same warning to each of us this morning. We need to allow this chapter that we're looking at. We need to allow this chapter as we read it to produce in us, you know, a, a sober perspective, an understanding that that there will be people that are going to stand before the Lord on that day and they're going to hear him say, cast out that unprofitable servant. Can you even begin to imagine what it would be like to be in outer darkness? I mean, think about it. If light in the Bible symbolizes the presence of God, then darkness must symbolize the absence of God. Right? Imagine spending an eternity in darkness. Darkness so terrible that it produces weeping and gnashing of teeth. And, and you know, it's a description there that's intended to help us to conceptualize just the total horror uh, that's there, you know, to produce, that's produced in, uh, you know, the outer darkness, the torment that comes from being in that state. Well, you know, Gary, that's why I hate coming to church, man. That's why I hate talking to Christians. You know, that's the problem with organized religion. You know, all you guys ever talk about is hell. You know, tell me, Gary, why would a God of love send people, you know, into a state like that? I don't buy it. You know, you can believe it if you want, but I don't believe it. You know, uh, how could a God of love do that? Well, I think the answer is in the, the parable that we're looking at now, this next parable. Verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. So this is obviously referring to the second coming of Jesus Christ. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, then He'll sit on the throne of His glory. Now, I, I don't want anyone to be confused, okay? The Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and 25 uh, is given by Jesus, directed to his Jewish disciples, right? The Olivet Discourse is Jesus' teaching in response to the questions the disciples ask. And they asked, uh, what will be, uh, when will all these things take place? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age, right? The disciples' questions are related to Jerusalem, to Israel, and to the second coming, you know, when the Lord comes in glory to establish his kingdom. Matthew 24 and 25 has to do with Jesus' second coming, okay? Now, we've looked at these chapters in light of how they relate to us as Christians living in the world today in these last days. We looked at the applications that we're to glean from these chapters. But the teaching of Jesus is not directed specifically to the church in these two chapters. Okay? It's addressing the tribulation that's coming upon the world, followed by the second coming of Christ, none of which we'll see as Christians uh, because, you know, the church will be raptured prior to these events. So again, Jesus is speaking of the second coming here. Now, you might remember that a few Sundays ago, we established that the second coming is when Jesus is going to come in his glory in judgment and the entire world will see it. All will witness it, right? Whereas the rapture will be a secret snatching away of the believers. The second coming is when Jesus returns with his holy angels and immediately following the second coming is when the Lord is going to sit on the throne of his glory and that's a reference to the millennial reign of Christ, okay? As you study through the book of Revelation, you see chapter 1, the description of the risen and glorified Savior, right? Revelation 2 and 3, you see the entire church age uh, prophetically laid out in prehistory, 
Chapter 4, you see the church is caught up into heaven. Chapter 5, you see uh, this group, which can only be the church, worshiping there in heaven. Then in chapter 6 through 19, you see the Antichrist coming onto the world scene. At the beginning of the tribulation, you see the judgments of God. You see the, the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments. Each judgment poured out on a Christ-rejecting world in a greater and greater uh, degree, uh, power, scope, and severity. Okay? So then in Revelation 19, you see the end of the tribulation, right? And the church returning with Jesus at his second coming. And then Revelation 20, we're introduced to the millennium. Now, the word millennium is made up by two Greek words. Milli, meaning a thousand, and annum, meaning years. So the millennium is a thousand-year period where Jesus is going to rule and reign here on the earth. Now, that's what Jesus is referring to here in Matthew 25, 31, saying, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. He's talking about the millennial reign, right? This literal thousand-year reign of Christ here on the earth. In verse 32, all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. So keep your finger here, okay? And flip over with me to Revelation chapter 19. And let's take a look at it and the second coming of Christ. In Revelation 19, we see what's described as the battle of Armageddon. Okay, now the battle of Armageddon is where the Antichrist and the false prophets are going to lead their armies to fight against the Lord. And, uh, you know, when Jesus returns, they're somehow going to get it into their head that they can actually defeat the Lord. I mean, it, it is laughable. Uh, you know, uh, 2 Thessalonians 2.8, we read how when the Lord returns, He'll consume the lawless one, speaking of the Antichrist, with the breath of His mouth and destroy him, the Antichrist, with the brightness of his coming. Jesus will consume the Antichrist with the breath of his mouth, with just a word, just a word, uh, he'll consume the Antichrist and destroy him with the brightness of his coming, right? Just the glory of the Lord when he comes will be enough to destroy the Antichrist. The Antichrist is completely powerless against the word of God. And he will be completely destroyed by the Lord's presence. And we read in Revelation 19 of the second coming of the Lord, culminating in this battle known as the Battle of Armageddon. And I tell you what, it's probably the most one-sided battle in the history of all the world, past, present, and future, you know. But immediately after the second coming, there's the judgment of the nations. And that's what we're going to look at here in Matthew 25, when the Lord will gather together all those upon the earth and he'll judge the nations of the world. So Revelation 19, starting in verse 11, John writes, he says, Now I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and his head and on his head, uh, were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, now that's speaking of the church. The next phrase makes it very clear. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he, he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. He cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men. So this is a description of just total devastation. 
as a result of this very one-sided battle. That you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, uh, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These they were cast alive into the lake of fire burning. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeds from his mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. So when the Lord comes back at a second coming, he comes in judgment as described here in Revelation 19 verse 15 as treading the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And in Revelation 14, 20, we also read uh, of the winepress. It says, And the winepress was trampled outside the city, and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridle for 1,600 furlongs. So at the, the Lord's second coming, whether this uh, verse is to be taken literally, as many Bible scholars see it, you know, there will be a river of blood four feet deep, 180 miles long. Or whether this verse, as many other scholars interpret it, the slaughter is going to be so great that the blood will be spattered as high as four feet for 180 miles. Either way, it's a graphic depiction of a coming judgment that results in an overwhelming destruction of the enemies of the Lord. And this judgment will not only take place at the Battle of Armageddon, but it also describes uh, the judgment uh, you know, of the nations that will occur after that battle. Okay, The judgment we're looking at here in Matthew 25. So flip back over to Matthew 25, verse 32. And we'll see it says, immediately after the Lord's return, all the nations will be gathered before him and he'll separate them one from another as a, sheep divide, uh, as a shepherd divides his sheep in the, from the goats. Now, again, I don't want to lose anybody here, okay? I, ho- I hope I'm making this clear. This judgment is at the second coming of the Lord when he comes and he sets up his kingdom. Okay, this is not the great white throne judgment where the wicked dead are resurrected and judged. That happens later in Revelation chapter 20. And we want to notice also in verse 32 of Matthew 25, the word translated the nations, well, could also be, and maybe it would be better translated, the Gentiles, okay? The Lord will gather the Gentiles before him and separate uh, them one from another. They're described as sheep, you know, mixed in with goats, right? And they'll be judged individually, the Gentiles. They'll be judged individually, not as, you know, a national group. This judgment will determine who will and will not enter into the millennial kingdom. Now, let me read for you a prophecy in the Old Testament given by the prophet Joel. And we're going to put it up for you. Joel says in Joel 3, 11 through 14, he says, Assemble and come, all you nations, and gather together all around. Cause your mighty ones to go down there, O Lord. Let the nations be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, go down, for the wine press is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. You know, multitudes and multitudes. I mean, it's just a sea of people as far as the eye can see. And it's not speaking of 
these people making a decision for the Lord at this point. That's not what it's talking about. It's the Lord making decisions concerning the people, concerning the nations. It's the Lord judging the Gentiles. And that's what we're reading about here in Matthew 25. In verse 32, all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a sheep divides as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats, and he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Now, as we read through this parable, we're going to see that the goats are those who did not know the Lord. Okay? Those uh, that refuse to surrender their life to the Lord, they're those who are going to be told to depart from the Lord into everlasting fire, okay? The sheep, on the other hand, are those that place their faith in the shepherd, put their faith in the Lord. Jesus said, John uh, 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd uh, gives his life for the sheep. And again, in John 10, 14, he, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep and are known by my own. Right? And Jesus continues, John 10, verse 27, 28, saying, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hands. You know, just as a side note, how sweet is it to know that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God as believers in Jesus Christ. I mean, nothing can separate us from his love. What a tremendous comfort that is. Man, that's such a comfort to me. Now, the sheep spoken of in Matthew 25, 33 are those that evidently put their faith in Jesus Christ during the tribulation period, those who have placed their faith in Christ during the tribulation and survived that period, refusing to take the mark of the beast, and as a tribulation comes to an end, these are the ones who will enter into the millennial reign of Christ when Jesus sits on his throne in glory and judgment. And he'll rule uh, and he'll rule for a thousand years here on the earth. That's the millennial reign of Christ. And these are the people that go into that, that time. You know, a lot of believers right here, they ask the question, okay, but where are we going to be? You know, we, all we really need to remember, you know, is wherever the Lord is, that's where we're going to be, okay? You know, wherever the Lord is, that's where his sheep is going to be. Jesus said, you will always be with me where I am. And he said that we're to comfort one another with these words. During the millennial reign of Christ, we're going to rule and reign with him, right? Well, wait a minute, Gary. Who are we going to rule and reign over? Those that refuse the mark of the beast, who place their faith in Jesus Christ, survive the tribulation period, they'll enter into the millennial kingdom of Christ and will rule and reign over them with the Lord. And we also know, and we've talked about it in past studies, the Jewish people will recognize Jesus as their Messiah during this time, right? They'll come out, they'll call out to him, saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they'll look on him whom they've pierced, and they're going to break down and weep. And they're going to mourn for him as one mourns for their only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. And then they're going to say to him, where did you get those wounds in your hands? And Jesus will say, you know, I received these wounds in the house of my friends. Right? And the Jewish people will recognize Jesus as their Messiah, as their Savior, right? And we saw in the last chapter, Matthew 24, 31, Jesus is going to gather the Jews from all over the world, and they too will enter into the millennial kingdom of Christ. And again, we'll be with the Lord, ruling and reigning with Him. Verse 33 says, And He will set the sheep on His right hand, but the goats on His left, then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, 
inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now, it's here in verse 34 that we we see something worth noting. And that's this. We see God's sovereignty in their salvation. Okay? The kingdom was prepared for them, it says, from the foundation of the world. God chose them just as he's chosen you. Okay, do you know that? I mean, you think back to when you were saved. For me, you know, it was uh, uh, March, April, 1979. I don't remember the exact day. You know, it was right around my birthday when I chose Jesus Christ as my Savior. But you know what? That's not entirely true, right? Because Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And we read in Ephesians 1.4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Jesus also said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So as you try to understand all this, you clearly see God's sovereignty in our salvation. In Ephesians and Colossians, you know, you read that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And it's God who made you alive. And as you read uh, that, you have to ask yourself, what can a dead man do to make himself alive? And the answer is obviously nothing. He can't do anything at all. He's dead. Salvation is a sovereign work of God. It's a sovereign work of God in our life. Well, somebody might be thinking, hey, Gary, you sound an awful lot like a Calvinist right now. Hey, guess what? It's true. I am a Calvinist. And I'm also an Arminianist. Arminianist. You know the other guy. I believe with all my heart that the Bible teaches that each person has a responsibility to choose Christ as their Savior. How could anyone deny that? You know, how could Jesus say in Matthew 23, 37, while weeping over Jerusalem, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who gather uh, or, or who sent, uh, are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather uh, your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Yeah, I think it's impossible to read that passage and others like it and fail to see that there's a responsibility on the human level. You know, John 1.12 says, but as many as received him, that's a choice. As many as received him, you choose to receive him, you choose to reject him. But as many as received him, To them, he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. Paul said in Romans 10, 13, whoever, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You know, the word whoever there declares that salvation is available to anyone and everyone who is willing to call upon the name of the Lord. No one is excluded, right? One of the last verses in the book of Revelation, Revelation twenty two seventeen, says, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. Let him who thirsts, Come. Whoever desires, let him take the waters of life freely. You know what? First and foremost, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. But in, regard, in regards to God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, I guess I'm best described as a Calvinist, you know? I mean, I believe salvation is a sovereign work of God. But at the same time, I believe that each person must make a choice and choose to be saved by placing their faith in Jesus Christ. Someone may ask, well, how do you reconcile those two views, Gary? I mean, they seem to be opposite. You know, when I'm asked that question, I defer to C.S. Lewis one of the greatest Christian minds of all time, right? He said, in regards to reconciling these two seemingly opposing views, he said, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are like two great pillars extending up into heaven. Two sturdy pillars that salvation hangs on. He said, somewhere out of our sight, those two pillars meet before the throne of God, right? We just can't see it this side of heaven. You know, someone asked Spurgeon how he reconciled those two truths, the truth of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And Spurgeon said, I don't. 
I don't have to reconcile friends. I love that. I believe with all my heart that God chose me, but I, I also had to choose him. You know, J. Vernon McGee, I don't know about you, just hearing his voice brings comfort to me, you know? Now, friends, <laughs> the worst J. Vernon McGee impression, what would you say? Yeah, he is. Now, friends, that's where the rubber meets the road. Well, he once spoke about an old, old sharecropper, right? And how he described it when asked about choosing salvation in light of God's sovereignty. And the sharecropper said, you know, I don't know nothing about all that. All I know is God chose me for heaven. The devil chose me for hell. So I just cast my vote with God. You know, Spurgeon, he also, he was asked how he defended these two truths. And he said, you know, the word of God is like a lion. You don't defend a lion. You let him out of the cage. And, and I don't know how all this ties together, how these things are both true. And guess what? I don't have to know how it works out. All I know is that's what the Bible teaches. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. So that's what I believe. And that's what I teach. And that's what we're to do. We're not to argue over these things. We're just to preach the word of God. There are people who hold to one extreme over the other. You know, there are people who will come into our fellowship that believe God has chosen you. That's it. You have no choice. And my heart is that we, Calvary Chapel Truckee, as a church, we'd have a balanced view and understanding of the Word of God, to believe in God's sovereignty solely apart from man's responsibility. You know, it raises the question, then why bother praying? You know, if God's sovereign and He's, He has not, and it has nothing to do with me, right, interceding for a loved one or a friend, you know, I, I, I can do nothing to sway uh, the outcome, then why bother praying? You know, it's not going to change anything. But God calls us to pray. Well, why bother telling anyone about Jesus Christ? After all, if God's sovereign, he's going to save whoever it is he's going to save. Then our witnessing, you know, our telling people that Jesus is the only way of salvation, our telling people that he died for the sins of the world, it's all in vain. Our witnessing doesn't change anything. So why bother? He calls us to witness. That's why. You know, there used to be people, I don't know if you're aware of this, but there used to be people that would stand outside of the Billy Graham uh, Crusades and they would wear a T-shirt that had the international no symbol over choice, right? Choice is crossed out. And, and they would try to turn people away from the Crusades saying, don't buy into the lie. Billy Graham is a false prophet. You have no choice. Can you imagine that? <laughs> and talk about love. Talk about Chutzpah, I guess. I don't know. Denying man's responsibility is such a sterile, one-sided perversion of what the Bible teaches. Verse 34, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick and in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, as surely I say to you, Inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Now, again, we can't forget the context is the second coming. Jesus is speaking to those who have refused the mark of the beast, that they've placed their faith in uh, Jesus as their Savior. They've survived the tribulation period. And as a result of their faith in Christ, that's what makes them righteous, Right? Their faith in Christ is what's motivated them to reach out to the Jewish people during the tribulation. When the Antichrist goes into the temple and declares himself to be God and demands that people worship him as God, 
You know, at that time, the Jews are going to reject him as their Messiah. They're going to say, hey, this isn't the guy we thought he was. And they're going to reject him. And because they turn from him and refuse to worship him as God, you know what? The Antichrist will seek to destroy them. And Jesus is saying to these Gentiles that refuse the mark and place their faith in Christ, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, the Jewish people, you did it to me. The context of this entire parable is the second coming. That's for sure. But it doesn't, uh, but if this doesn't, if this parable doesn't have application for us as Christians today, boy, guess what? I don't know what does. You know, we can't miss the application that's here for us. There never has been or ever will be a salvation that's earned through good works. Okay? No one is saved because they do good things. You know, that needs to be crystal clear in our minds. But our faith in Jesus needs to be a faith that is demonstrated in a lifestyle, in a lifestyle of reaching out to others with the love of Christ. And as we do it to the least of these, we're doing it to Jesus. It's one reason why we're taking this upcoming trip to Hungary, reaching out to kids and adults that don't know Jesus. You know, it's one of the reasons why we went to Poland to be part of loving and caring for you know, refugees fleeing for their safety in Ukraine. You know, it's one of the reasons why, you know, we support missionaries in the 1040 window that are literally taking their life in their hands, sharing the gospel with villages within villages that don't know Jesus Christ. It's one of the reasons why we support Beth Blades as she's reaching out to kids with the gospel. It's the reason we support Ted and Mario, you know, serving in Mexico. It's why we support Dennis and Wendy Murdian. It's the reason we have a food pantry. It's one of the reasons we're asking the Lord to show us how he would have us reach out to the town of Truckee in his name. It's one of the reasons that we're not satisfied to sit around and do nothing now that we're saved, right? One of the reasons why we do what we do as a church is this verse, right? And as we do it, as we do it to the least of these, we're doing it to Jesus. As you visit the sick, as you comfort those that are hurting, as you take people into your homes and share with them the gospel and fellowship with them and encourage them, as you seek to meet the needs of people who find themselves in difficult circumstances, Jesus said, when you do it to the least of these, you're doing it to me. Verse 41 Then he will say to those on his left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for you and for the devil and his angels. Did anyone catch it? What was the wrong with what I said? Yeah, that's not what it says. Right? Hell is not created for man. Hell is not created for man. Hell was prepared for the devil and his angels, not for man. And there are those that hold that that extreme view, right? saying, not only has God chosen us for salvation, but he's chosen others to go to hell, right? They don't come right out and say it that way. But that's what they're saying when they say, God has sovereignly chosen some for heaven, right? Because if that's true, then it stands to reason that God in his sovereignty has also chosen some to burn in hell, right? They're destined to hell. God created hell uh, for them, just as he created heaven for those that he's going to uh, save. And the reality is that's an unbalanced view of predestination and election, right? In predestining some to go to heaven, God automatically predestines others to go to hell. There's no escaping that conclusion, right? It's called double predestination. That's the doctrine, right? And if you hold to that view that God has chosen some to go to heaven apart from man's responsibility, then you're saying that God has sovereignly predestined others to burn in hell for all eternity. Honestly, I vehemently reject that doctrine. Right? The day I believe that is the day I quit the ministry because I'll have nothing good to say. No one can label that message as good news. It's not a loving, gracious, merciful God that would do such a thing, 
And you know what? When we come up to these difficult doctrines and the, that people you know, uh, espouse two opposing views, we don't know how to work them out. You know, we have to hold tight to the rule of when you come across something you don't understand, you fall back on what you do understand. You know what? God is love. First John 4 says it. God is long-suffering towards us, not, that, not willing that any should perish, that all should come to repentance, 2 Peter 3, 9. God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, 1 Timothy 2, 4. Hell was not prepared for man, right? Hell was prepared for the devil and the angels. But the truth is, if a person rejects Jesus Christ, offer of forgiveness. If you refuse to agree with God that you've sinned, that you've fallen short of the glory of God, which is simply His standard, uh, which is perfection, right? If you refuse to receive the righteousness that Christ offers, rejecting Jesus as your Savior, you ultimately will face Jesus as your judge. And you'll incur the wrath of God that your sins deserve. Verse 41 is so very powerful. And the book of Revelations indicates that a third of the angels fell with Satan when he rebelled against God. And those fallen angels are referred to in the New Testament as demons. Was hell created for man? No. It was prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 41. The correct way to read it is then he says to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. Again, Jesus is speaking to the goats here. Okay? Those that will depart into everlasting fire. Boy, you know what? That's something to meditate on, isn't it? You know, what's everlasting fire like? Anyone in their right mind would shudder just hearing the term, thinking about that as an eternal destination. Jesus said, For I was hungry, you gave me no, no food. I was thirsty. You gave me no drink. I was a stranger. You did not take me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison. You did not vis visit me. And they'll answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then he'll answer them saying, Surely I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. We need to be so careful that our faith is not just words. Hey, I'm a Christian. You know, I go to church. I put money in the plate when it comes around. You know, I dropped $5 in it last Sunday. I believe Jesus as much as the next guy. You know, our faith can't be just words. Right? Our faith needs to manifest itself in our lives practically. Our attitudes and our actions towards others is an evidence of our belief in Jesus Christ. James, the half-brother of Jesus, said it this way. James 1.27, he says, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble. Oh, that we would minister practically the love of Jesus to those that are in need. And James continues on, and he says, if you have the love of Jesus in your heart, and you have the blessings of this world, and you see people who are in need, and your response to them is, hey, be warm, be filled, have a great day, God bless you. You know what, when you see people in obvious need, people we so often see, people in our lives, even in the smallest possible way, you know, and nothing leaves our pockets. Nothing goes out uh, from us to help them. You know what? Something's wrong. And please, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. You know, I'm not saying you, that we're supposed to empty our wallets every time we see somebody on the street corner begging. That's not what I'm saying. But we do need to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit and what the Lord would have us do when we do see them. And we need to be willing and ready to respond eagerly when the Lord moves on our hearts, speaks to our hearts about these people. Verse 46, And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And I'd like to point out to you in that verse, 
the Greek word translated everlasting in regards to punishment is the same Greek word that's used for eternal in regards to the duration of life. The punishment for those who reject Jesus, he says, is just as long as the reward for those that receive him as their Savior. You know, we started out this morning by recapping last week's study. I mentioned Matthew 25, verse 30, where Jesus spoke of outer darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. This morning, verse 41, Jesus mentions the curse being sent into everlasting fire. And here in verse 46, Jesus talks about everlasting punishment. Sometimes I wonder if we really believe that. You know, are, are you challenging me whether I believe the Bible or not, Pastor? You know, of course I believe the Bible. Well, okay. You know, I believe you believe the Bible. You know, but do you really? Do we really believe this? Do we believe there's everlasting fire? Outer darkness where there's weeping, gnashing of teeth? everlasting punishment for the unsaved? Is that something that you really believe? You know, is it part of how you see people around you that don't know Jesus as their Savior? Has that become part of you? Is the truth that you really believe, is it that people who reject Jesus Christ as their Savior are going to face an eternity of pain and suffering and outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth? Again, why? Because the Lord doesn't know that, uh, love them? No. The Lord loves them tremendously. You know, the Bible says that God demonstrated His own love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ, His Son, died for us. But to reject that love, to, to dismiss the offer of salvation like it's of no value, right? To to off the offer of righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ, to refuse Him will result ultimately in facing Christ as your judge and having the wrath of God poured out upon you. You know, what a frightening thought. But that's the reality that Jesus teaches here, right? God sends no one to hell because God, in His love, has made a way for us to escape that judgment. Right? Those who end up going to hell are those that insist upon it. They insist upon going to hell, flat out refusing the free gift of salvation. Paul said, interestingly to me, now then, we are ambassadors of Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Is that the way you share Jesus Christ with the unsaved? Imploring them, begging them, beseeching them to be reconciled to God, knowing that their fate, you know, is everlasting punishment if they fail fail to repent of their sin. May we allow the reality of this truth to sink into our hearts. You know, may we allow our hearts to break over the condition of our unsaved friends, our unsaved family members. You know, unsaved co-workers, the people we see on an almost daily basis that we know are unsaved. May we allow our hearts to break for them. Because you know what? Our Lord's heart breaks for them. You know, you probably heard the story of the famous atheist who rejected God saying, if I believed it to be true, what you Christians say you believe, I would crawl on my hands and knees over broken glass. I would crawl over burning coals if need be to take the gospel to those who are lost. And he said, by the very way Christians handle the gospel, it must not be true. You know, is there any wonder why Jesus wept over Jerusalem, you know, as they rejected him as their Messiah? God, give us a heart for the lost. You know, I'm teaching this, not pointing a finger at anyone here, saying, hey, you know what, you need to do more. This is what you're failing in. No, I'm directing this study to me, first and foremost. 
you know what? I want to be stirred in a greater measure to share Christ with people who don't know him. You know what? I don't want to be guilty of doing nothing with the resources that God has given me. You know, some very lovingly, and I do mean lovingly, but some have recently voiced concern that I'm doing too much, spreading myself too thin. And I hear what it is they're, they're saying, and I, and I receive it in love because that's the way they, they mean it. But honestly, in my view, our time is short. You know, too many people have not yet heard of the love of Jesus Christ. Too many people have not yet received Jesus as their Savior, escaping the judgment to come. And soon, and I believe very soon, it's going to be too late. Right? I want to be spent for the Lord. I want to leave everything out on the playing field, as they say. Right? I want to be used for God. I want to be used for His glory. I want a fire in my heart that burns, that, you know, refuses to be quenched. I want to be about building the kingdom of God. I want to be guilty of creating a population, an overpopulation problem in heaven. You know what? Because the time is short. You know, one final thought. Psalm 917 says, The wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. Don't you know our nation has forgotten God? Our nation is headed to hell. You know, we can't stand by and watch our nation just march off to hell. You know, hey, Gary, I'm just one guy. What, what difference can I make? Well, the way I see it, if I share Christ with a thousand people and one of them gives their heart to the Lord, then I've made an eternal difference in that person's life. Right? D.L. Moody, the greatest American evangelist of all time, said, the world has yet to see what God can do with a man or, uh, insert here, a woman for that matter. He says, the world has yet to see what God can do with a man who is wholly given over to him. And my question, always after hearing that quote, is why not you be that man or woman? Why not you be that man or woman? Why not ask God to use you mightily? You know what? Let's ask God to use us in ways that could only be described as miraculous. And then let's see what God is willing to do with us. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you so much for the word. The word given to us, Lord. The word intended to go deep into our heart, take root, and bear fruit. Lord, I pray that you would do that. Encourage us this morning. Encourage us this morning to see things as you see things, Lord. To respond as you would have us respond. To respond in your name the way you would respond if you were physically here. Lord, you've entrusted to us resources and talents and giftings and opportunities and influences. Lord, position. Lord, help us to use it all for your glory. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.